0: The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Book 2, Chapter 7 and Book 4, Chapters 1 and 2. Abruptly transported from Tartarus to Paradise, Gringoire finds himself snug, warm, with good food and a comfortable bed in Prospect, and seated across from the celestial creature Esmeralda, his wife. His poet's imagination allows him to believe that he has in fact been transfigured into the storybook hero, and he approaches the gypsy girl, lover-like, speaking to her in impassioned tones and clasping her by the waist. He is swiftly returned to reality when she produces a dagger and stands guarded and proud against him with lightning flashing from her eyes. He is disappointed to learn that she indeed had no other idea in wedding him than to save him from the gibbet. Esmeralda offers him a meager but long-incoming supper, and he devours it with a manner suggesting, quote, All his love had turned to hunger, unquote. Embarrassed that he has left none for Esmeralda herself, he asks whether she eats, and she shakes her head, looking pensively in the distance she is nourished by a thought. When Gringoire engages her in conversation about friendship and love, the nature of that thought becomes clear. The pensive expression returns at the question, do you love anyone? And her reply, I shall know soon. And later, as she stares vacantly at the floor, Phoebus. We are offered a glimpse of Esmeralda's idea of a romantic hero. He must be a man, a man who can protect her, and of love, to be two and yet one, a man and woman blended into an angel, a child's fairy-tale vision of romance. Gringoire tries to learn more about this enchanting and enigmatic girl. She is called Esmeralda because of the green amulet that hangs in a silk bag around her neck. She came to Paris when she was very small. The man they call the Duke of Egypt is the head of her tribe. And Gringoire shares details of his history in turn. He was an orphan at the age of six, barely able to survive off the scraps of strangers. At sixteen, he desired to learn a trade, and found that, as he was good for nothing, he would become a poet. The Archdeacon Claude Frollo took an interest in him and educated him. But Gringoire's confessions, meant to awaken love in Esmeralda, have no such effect. She is consumed by only one thought, Phoebus. And when Gringoire is not looking, she disappears into the night. We are then taken still further back through time to Quasimodo Sunday, 1467. A foundling has been deposited on a bedstead in the square outside Notre-Dame Cathedral. With a tone of dry but scathing humor, Hugo exposes the unreason, superstitions, callousness, and cruelty of the Parisians who stop to examine the grotesquely deformed orphan. In their eyes, it is a monkey, a monster, a sorcerer, a demon, and these godly spectators decide that it ought to be burned at the stake. Then Claude Frollo, the archdeacon— later to be Gringoire's tutor and benefactor, as well as Esmeralda's melancholy audience and apparent kidnapper, emerges from the crowd, declares he will adopt the child, wraps him in his cassock, and bears him away. We are then given a glimpse into the history of this fascinating and mysterious priest. His early life was scholarly, solitary, and somber. He was a sad, serious child, with few friends, and disinclined to play. His parents destined him to enter the ranks of the clergy. He was trained in Latin and educated in a convent. At the age of sixteen, he was already a master of mystical, canonical, and scholastic theology. Having mastered theology, he dove into decretals, papal decrees of canon law, then into medicine, and then into the language arts. With the arrival of the plague, he was quote, "rudely recalled from scholastic dreams to reality." Unquote. His parents died, and he was left sole caretaker of his baby brother, Jehan, and became filled with a devotion that was quote, "a strange, sweet thing to him who had nothing but books before." Unquote. The man of intellect had discovered his heart and this love became a new and all-consuming identity. Thereafter, his studies were a means to an end, the end of his brother's future. It was for little Jean that he pursued his clerical calling and made himself answerable to God. And it was from this devotion that he adopted the orphan humpback as a sort of, quote, investment of good works in his little brother's name, unquote. He baptized the child Quasimodo, either to commemorate the adoption day or because this one-eyed, hump-backed, knock-kneed child was the physical embodiment of an apology. The second of my posts to the Facebook group was called Claude Frollo. The character of Claude Frollo is compelling from the start. His sober seriousness by comparison with his riotous peers he was uniquely able to resist the childish temptation to, quote, tease the bursars of the college doormans about their shaven pates, unquote. The intensity of his intellectual ambition, quote, the first scholar to be seen, glued to a column, directly opposite the speaker's chair, armed with his inkhorn, chewing his pen, Scribbling on his threadbare knee, and in winter blowing on his fingers to keep them warm. Unquote. His insatiable and monomaniacal appetite for learning. Quote, At eighteen, he had done with the four faculties. Life seemed to the youth to have but one purpose to gain knowledge. Unquote. The transference of his intellectual intensity to fraternal devotion. This affection grew to a singular degree. In so virgin a soul, it was like a first love. His ominous misapprehension that this was the only love he would ever need. Only he fancied, for he was at the age when illusions are still replaced by illusions only, that the ties of family and kindred were all that was necessary. "'and that a little brother to love "'was enough to fill up a whole life,' unquote. "'The depth of his compassion,' quote, "'its distress, its deformity, its desertion, "'the thought of his own little brother, "'the wild dread which at once struck him, "'that if he should die, his dear little Jean "'might also be flung upon that board to suffer. "'All this rushed into his heart at once,' A great wave of pity swept over him, and he carried off the child, unquote. And his strangely sinister behavior in regard to Esmeralda. Claude Frollo's is a soul ripe for conflict. The last of my posts to the Facebook group was called Loving Curiosity. Permit me a momentary diversion. Last fall, in my daughter's first semester at Great Books School, Thomas Aquinas College, she read The Insect World of J. Henry Fob. In connection with the reading, she and her classmates were each asked to collect 25 distinct varieties of insects, to pin them to a board, and then to devise their own rudimentary classification system. She was home in Orange County the weekend before the project was due, and despite weeks of having walked the campus— she still needed to find five more insects. This is California. Bugs are basically illegal. So she and I headed down to the little patch of swampy ground across from our neighborhood and started hunting. One thing we were quickly able to find in abundance were dragonflies. Brilliant, iridescent little dragonflies in a dazzling array of colors and patterns, darting and flitting all around us, Though they would often land long enough for us to gaze at them in wonder, and stalk them predatorily, they were very hard to catch. This assignment had many virtues, one of which was that it forced her, and, as it turned out, both of us, to stop and look at the world, to really look at it with attentiveness and patience and wonder. I notice dragonflies now, and I love them more. You know what else can prompt that sort of careful attention to the beauty and meaning life offers? Great literature. It is probably no surprise that I thought of this story in connection with our last assignment, because one of the sections that dazzled me most was Hugo's likening of Esmeralda to a dragonfly. Quote, You were a child once, reader, and you may be lucky enough to be one still. You must more than once, And for my part, I spent whole days at it, the best days of my life. Have pursued from bush to bush, on the brink of some stream, in bright sunshine, Some lovely green or azure dragonfly, Which checked its flight at sharp angles, and kissed the tip of every twig. You will remember the loving curiosity with which your mind and your eye Followed that buzzing, whizzing little whirlwind, with blue and purple wings, between which floated an intangible form, veiled by the very swiftness of its motion. The airy creature, vaguely seen amid the quivering wings, seemed to you chimerical, imaginary, impossible to touch, impossible to see. But when the dragonfly at last rested on the tip of a reed, and you could examine, holding your breath meanwhile, its slender gauzy wings, its long enameled robes, its crystal globe-like eyes. What amazement you felt, and what fear, lest it should again fade to a shadow and the creature turn to a chimera. Recall these sensations, and you will readily appreciate what Gringoire felt as he beheld invisible, palpable form, that Esmeralda of whom he had hitherto but a glimpse amidst the eddying dance and song and a confused mass of people. This passage helps to awaken in me an attitude I think is captured well in the passage itself. Loving curiosity. First, it helped me to conceptualize all that is beautiful about a dragonfly. Its gauzy wings, crystal eyes, and enameled robes, the swiftness of its motion, moving through the air like a whizzing little whirlwind, its imaginary and chimerical quality. It's the sort of description that makes one say, yes, that is what I always thought was so beautiful about a dragonfly. But was it? Was the beauty ever so clear to you? Or has Hugo helped you to see it as you never quite did before? In addition, the description of the little dragonfly was a means to another end. The end of appreciating the ethereal beauty of Esmeralda and Gringoire's thrill at having such close access to one so untouchable. Hugo draws the comparison to bring that thrill alive, to make it real and palpable to us. And finally, by sharpening our vision of the dragonfly, And by drawing a connection to the thrill of access to the inaccessible, we learn how to find the beauty and the meaning in our lives. We learn how, not just to see dragonflies and the metaphorical meaning of dragonflies, but to see and to find metaphorical meaning per se. We learn the habit of looking upon our experiences with loving curiosity. I know I'm grasping at a somewhat intangible idea, but I hope this offers at least a passing glimpse of it before it fades to a shadow, and that we will see it light upon a twig again.